Jonathan Singerman, Compulsible Reader. Uh, grateful to God to be here. Thank you, Nancy, for taking a chance on me. Um, I usually don't go to meetings. It's, you know, I live in Santa Clarita, which is about 40 miles north of, 45 miles north of downtown LA, but um, the COVID-19 thing going on, occasionally I go to some meetings outside of my area and I change meetings temporarily for Tuesday night. And uh, I think that's how Nancy saw me at, at that Tuesday night meeting. A friend of mine who's my OA brother, he's sponsored by Michael B., Greg M., he turned me on to your meeting on Tuesday night. So it's a good, very good meeting. I'm very grateful to go there. Um, so I come from a quasi-dysfunctional family. Not quasi, just I always feel bad because I don't want to rag on my parents. But uh, my uh, my mother had a nervous breakdown a year after I was born. And so my, uh, you know, she was like that till the day she died. And some days she'd be just totally normal. Another day she'd be like in la-la land, just spaced out. And that's the life of a... Um, uh, schizophrenic uh, especially and she had to take pills till she died and uh, it's a very embarrassing thing for me to grow up with her because I didn't understand it my father used to tell me son you gotta love her and be kind in the meantime he'd be hard on her so as the saying goes the example speaks so loud I cannot hear a word you say my dad was not a mean bastard he wasn't beating her or anything but but you could see he was in charge and uh, and he was 10 years older than her from World War II and uh so that's who I grew up with, and my father was a self-made man, and uh, my mother did become a teacher in the state of California until she, um, you know, a few years well in that marriage, I guess it was eight, seven or eight years in that marriage before they had me. Um, so my image of women was pretty warped. If, if, if you were a pretty woman, that meant to me that you were... Uh, stupid because my mother was drop-dead gorgeous like Elizabeth Taylor and I, so I interpreted her mental illness as a lack of intelligence which is probably I don't know if that's common or not but that's what happened to me and because she was so sweet and nice uh, I interpreted that as weakness so you know I had a lot of warped images of women growing up and then prejudices with Black people were there because my grandfather, you know, he was from Missouri, and uh, so that transferred over to my father. And he wasn't that hardcore about it, but it was definitely prejudice in the house growing up. And I'm Jewish, right? So go figure. But that's what it was growing up in that household. My, my father is very smart. Where he graduated high school at 15 years old, and then she went to the military, started his own business, and uh, I had a strict upbringing. Probably, I'm, I want to guess, my mother, my mother, I'm pretty sure, was a bedwetter. I was a bedwetter till I was, oh, I'd say 15 years old at least, wedding almost every single day. Because um, the pressure in the house is pretty heavy, and uh, and I think physiologically, you know, that's just was my path. And uh, alcohol and drugs certainly help with that. But I was a compulsive reader for probably five years old on. And, um, you know, I... Uh, I was a stealer. I stole from my mother all the time. She held that metal box underneath her bed, and I ripped off 10s, 20s out of there all the time. And I was a mean bastard growing up. I was very mean to my to my mother and my brothers. You know, I had one brother at that time, eventually two, and I used to beat up my brother all the time and get in fights all the time. And I was a very mean, nasty kid growing up. Um, if I thought you were too, you know, I used to like to pick on the big guys because when I thought I could take them, but when every once in a while I made a mistake, and that was pretty embarrassing, let me tell you, when you're punching someone in the face and they're not moving, that's will make you a little nervous. Um, the food was always there for me, and uh, 
I can remember uh, being in, in uh, uh, my friend's van and throwing up all these pancakes because I stuffed myself with pancakes and I was under so much pressure because a guy was blackmailing me and started to blackmail me and I had all this child molestation going on. Five years of that, probably from ages seven to 12, three years pretty hardcore. So between all that stuff going on in, in my image and, and I was just a wild, crazy kid and stuffing food into me was, was just came as natural as can be to stuff those feelings of resentment and hatred and fear all the time and, and just, you know, I stole food from stores all the time and there was just no it. You know, I, I would eat as much as I could. And I was very physically active, and that's the only reason I probably didn't become a three or three or four hundred pounder yet. And I say yet because I know if I go back out there, that that could happen to me. Um, and so, seven years old, uh, the babysitters were giving me their cigarettes, uh, butts to smoke, and and nine, I just started drinking that Manischewitz wine, and uh, got bar mitzvah at thirteen. Uh, but uh, got heavily more and more into alcohol and drugs. And the more in alcohol and drugs I got into, I was compulsively overeating. I tried to overeating pizza and all kinds of the food. And, uh, That's five minutes. Long story. Okay, thank you, thank you, Eric. Long story short is is I got myself in a hell of a lot of trouble. And uh, you know, one marijuana bust to my name, not like my late AA sponsor who did 20 out of 26 years in all the prisons up and down the coast. But um, I was either drinking or using, especially in the drugs and, and overeating, you know, and if I was really having the drugs, my overeating wasn't that bad, but a lot of times it was. And uh, my weight went up and down. I got into physical exercising all the time and uh, became very strong. I got into karate for a while and, you know, I couldn't find my way out of paper bag today, but I was into all kinds of stuff. And um, so my weight would go up and down and up and down as it did all my life. And, uh, and after trying many things uh, to get sober, because from ages 15 to 16 and a half, I was blasted out of my mind on alcohol and drugs, and 16 and a half to almost 18 and a half, uh, just trying so many different ways of life. You know, going to, uh, we used to have what we call the Jesus Freaks, now born again Christians, but they'd be on every corner in the 60s. And, uh, and I turned my life over to Jesus, switched from Judaism to that, and went into you know, the Nami Ringo Keo thing for a while, rubbing the beads and saying, you know, whatever I could do to wish for, you know, let me have it. And that didn't work. And reading Psycho-Cybernetics and going back to Temple and going to group therapy and, and, and group therapy with probation department and group therapy at my high school and uh, all these problems. And um, nothing was working in my life. And uh, my friend I used to drink with, I uh, took me to an AA meeting and uh, I heard a great speaker, Marvar, he's still sober and alive today. Uh, and that was about 48 years ago. And I didn't identify fully as an alcoholic at that moment, but I heard about OA. So it's like 48 years ago, I went to Overeaters Anonymous. And in those days, it was just gray sheet. There was no other diets or any other stuff. That was it. You did gray sheet. And I, I tell you, you guys were talking Chinese. I had no idea what the hell you were talking about. So for four months, I was in and out of OA and uh, and also my trying to get sober. And I finally got sober uh, at four months. And I was 18 years, 11 months old and uh, just a screwy, crazy kid. And got into, thank God I got into a very active super AA group. And um, I was in that group heavily. Wrote two major fourth and fifth steps and five years sober after coming back from the military and everything like that um, on reserves. Uh, 
started going to Overeaters Anonymous again for the second time. And this time, because I had been in AA for five years, you know, and you're super active in the meetings, but practicing these principles and none of my affairs outside the meetings. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, I got abstinent. I lost 45 pounds in like three months. And, uh, you know, I can remember going to this OA meeting one time and this guy who had a little more time than me. And, and he said, well, you're a real cocky son of a bitch, aren't you? And, I, and, I, and in my head, I just said, well, F you. I know what I'm doing. This is OA, and I got this down. I've lost this weight. I'm exercising. I got it down. Who the hell are you? That was going on in my head. I didn't say it to his face, but that's what was in my head. Met my uh, my wife-to-be at that time in OA. She'd come back from – she was in New York, OA, and moved out here. And, uh, you know, we uh, were going to OA together, and uh, – you know, just started going with each other a lot, and uh, I didn't have a lot of relationships with a lot of women, but we hit it hot and heavy, and, uh, you know, we were gone a year from Overeaters Anonymous before we even knew we had left, okay? And that 45 pounds came right back on, and by then I was sober six years, and I had a real resentment against you people. I hate your people's guts. Screw OA. I'm not going to have anything to do with you loser bastards. And I hung on to that resentment and that rage and that... Um, justification and all the stuff you guys read at this meeting was great well and good and from the perspective i am now talking to newcomer that's great but from being on a newcomer side of that fence i wouldn't have heard any of that because i was very self-willed and i wanted what i wanted and i do it my way and i lost the weight and i lose it again and i tried many things you know from six years sober to 37 years sober many things with my food going up and down up and down and gaining the weight more and more and going you know, my normal weight was like in the 140s, 150s when I was a teenager, but um, going into the 160s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 200, 210, 220, back down, uh, up and down, up and down, and then spraining knees and ankles and stuff because my, with my late wife and I, we, you know, she had, um, she was a wonderful cook. You'd walk in the door, the aroma would hit you, you'd knock you over. Her cooking was amazing. And, uh, and she was a very good woman, and I had no idea. I was like the guy you know, forgive the vulgar comparison. I was like a guy with 10 billion tons of gold on his front lawn bitching about the taxes I had to pay for my $100 million of interest every year. I mean, I had no idea what a wonderful woman I had in my life. But, you know, Chuck C used to see, you can't see, you can see, you can't hear, you can hear. And I was unwilling to listen. And I had four children with that wife and um, a beautiful woman. And, um, you know, we'd fight and have these knockdown dragouts fights and not have sex or anything for six months. And then we'd be like a couple of gerbils. There'd be another kid on the way. And I went back to school and got my education, got all kinds of degrees and things like that. And um, and that, that part of my program was, was working pretty good. And But I wasn't, I was a workaholic. And uh, eventually my wife got cancer after 19 years of marriage. And uh, it was a five-year battle with kidney cancer and she died from it. And, uh, you know, out of all evil, a little good must come. And, you know, when she got that cancer, I finally ended up throwing the tally because you can't win a fight with a woman who's got cancer, right? And, and then when we would have disagreements about stuff, I'd, I'd give in all the time because to give in. And I'd say, to myself, what the hell was I fighting about? The credit cards and this and that. I'm bitching about what kind of soap that she wants me to use or something that's not important. And, uh, you know, I... She passed away, and, and, and as terrible as that day was to have her buried in the ground like that, and my kids crying, and there were 300 people at that funeral, and things were, were, were going well in my program, but I still was not coming back to OA. And at 37 years sober, I was going to AA Men's Stag, and there was my friend Michael B. Um, 
we'd go out to Paquita Moss to eat dinner after the men's stack. I said, gee, Michael, you look like you're, you're really healthy. And, um, you know, uh, he 12-stepped me in that parking lot of Paquito Moss. And I was willing, I would have crawled through 50 yards of broken glass to call my food in that man. And I did that. He said, Jonathan, I want you to call me and start doing a fifth step with your food every day. You call me every day, you tell me what you ate the day before. And little by little, he got me going to meetings. I didn't want to go back to OA again, but he was in OA for 20 years at that time. And I had more sobriety than him, but he, he was having the program of recovery going for him. And he said, you got to go to meetings and, and, and you got to practice the OA program and say, when you practice the AA program, I said, oh my God, you know, no wonder I wasn't able to get this thing. I wasn't able to get it because I couldn't hear. But just like everything else, every other surrender in my life, I had to just be totally beaten into the ground, bleeding from every orifice. And I was willing to take his direction. And so I started calling him and I've been calling that man uh, seven days a week um, with my fist step on my food and, and everything else, you know, going along little by little. He told me I had to have a committed meeting and have a, you know, go to that meeting, have a commitment at my committed meeting and do what I do in my AA meetings. And, and then little by little, he started having me work, go through the steps. And, uh, you know, I meet with one of his other babies every other week. And we went through Dr. Paul's um, unofficial guide to 12 steps. Basically, it's just reading pages, you know, 1 to 164 of the big book and we'll go through it, some questions. And we went through the steps again and. Uh, and eventually he got me to a place where I was calling him, not just him alone, but he has various sponsees. We have a daily phone call every day. And, you know, uh, I joined another program, too, because I'm so screwed up with my life uh, with Al-Anon. So, you know, I go to AA, OA, and Al-Anon. And, you know, I hope if you're in OA, you just stick with one thing. You know, just go off in 50-minute programs. But it took me a long time. My late a I had a great AA sponsor for three and a half years, and he moved to Florida. And I was in California, and uh, my a good friend of mine, Don Newcomb, um, came up to me and said, Johnny, who's your sponsor? And I said, well, it's Tom H. He said, well, he's 3,000 miles away. And I said, well, you know, Clancy sponsors people 3,000 miles away. Why, why can't I do that? He said, no, you need to look your sponsor in the eye once a week. You get the meeting. And that's what I had to start doing. And after four months of, of additional sobriety with him, I was turned four years sober. And I thanked him at the podium. He gave me a cake. And at the meeting, he came up to me after the meeting. He said, Johnny, you didn't ask me to be your sponsor. And I said, Don, would you please be my sponsor? And he became my AA sponsor. And the point of that is, is after a week of abstaining with Michael B., um, I asked him to be my sponsor. He said, well, I thought I always was. I said, no, I didn't ask you. And the point of that is, I humbled myself to ask that man to be my sponsor. And I've been taking his direction ever since, and writing inventories with him. I do the AEIU inventory every day. I started that, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago, whenever it was, you know. Uh, and uh, I do a 10-step with that man every single day, and, and my food's not perfect. I, I have 10 years of imperfect absence, but it's been 10 years that I haven't had to eat white sugar desserts or white sugar peanut butter or pizza or, or white sugar desserts. Um, we'll go out for some Carbolite once in a while, uh, a little frozen yogurt with no sugar after a meeting or something like that. My always sponsor and I will do that once in a while. Uh, but for most part, I, I don't screw around with the sugar-free desserts. And once in a while, my, my son-in-law and daughter will make a sugar-free thing, so you know we'll, we'll eat it. But for the most part, I, I don't play games with the sugar-free foods because to me that's like methadone for heroin. So I have to have committed meetings. I have to practice these tools of recovery, every single one of them. I do. Some days I'm not perfect. I don't get them all every day, but I try to practice them as much as I can because, you know, the recovery is in these rooms in the program, but I have to show up and do the thing. 
I have to do the thing with you, and I got to be willing to call that sponsor, whether I'm in Israel or Arizona, where the hell I am, and I do that. And uh, for the most part, I'm pretty good about that. So I want to thank you guys for my life. My, my program in AA has gotten much better since I became abstinent and got rigorous honest. I can't think about drinking and stuff the food down. And, you know, now I, I don't do that anymore one day at a time. And I want to thank Nance again for having me, and thank you guys for my life.